The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and today I'm joined by two of my favorite colleagues, Kobus van Staden, China Global South's managing editor, joining us today from Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And also our regular guest host now, if you will, Giro Nima, who is the Francophone editor, joining us from the beautiful island of Mauritius in the Indian Ocean. A very good afternoon to you, Giro. Good afternoon, Eric. And today we're going to be doing a week in review show. So that's one of those shows where we cover a lot of ground. And we wanted to get an expert perspective on it. And somebody who's been following this for a very long time is Ovigwe Ego Ego, who's a policy analyst at Development Reimagined. Today joining us from Ankara, Turkey, where he's doing a fellowship. A very good afternoon to you, Ovigwe, and welcome back to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to have you on. I'm so excited to talk to all of you because it's really been a very busy week, as they all are, but right now it feels especially busy. Let's kind of run down what we're going to talk about today. Number one, these incredible naval exercises that are underway in South Africa, and I say incredible only because they're happening at the same time as the anniversary of the war in Ukraine. These naval exercises involve the Chinese Russian and South African navies. We're going to get Kobus's take on that. Lots going on in the debt space today. And this week, in fact, big news for Ghana and also the G20. And then we're going to wrap it up talking about the DRC again. And how did the Chinese manage to get a $17 billion demand down to a $500 million check? We're going to answer that question today as well. So let's talk about What's going on in South Africa right now? The Admiral Gorshkov, which is a Russian frigate loaded with Zircon hypersonic missiles, is now participating in what's called Operation Mosi 2. These are tri-naval exercises with the Chinese, Russians, and the South Africans. Three ships that are part of the 42nd Chinese Naval Escort Task Force arrived in Richards Bay this week. One of those vessels is the Huainan which is one of the PLA Navy's most advanced guided missile destroyers. And the exercises are taking place over a span of 10 days. A few days are at port, and now they are at sea. Kobus, you have been following this very closely. All week, I was participating in various discussions, panels, seminars, and things like that. The first question that everybody was asking is, what the hell are the South Africans thinking to do these kinds of exercises with the Russians at a time like this when, again, you don't have to necessarily be aligned with Russia on the war, but you can recognize that the war is a bad thing. And the South Africans basically said, you know what, we're pursuing our independent foreign policy. Back off, everybody. We're doing this. Help us understand the logic of these exercises, especially since they're coming at a time when it's not like your Navy can really afford to do these kinds of things. What's going on, Kobus? Well, you know, kind of helping people to understand it might be overselling <laughs> what I'm about to say. but Give us your best shot here. The reason is that today I wrote for our newsletter, I wrote a piece, you know, arguing that one of the big difficulties in understanding why the South African government does anything is that the South African government in general talks such a good game, right? Kind of, so they always sound very measured, like they, you know, kind of, they, they always have lists of, of reasons, lists of, you know, kind of initiatives that they're going to launch and, and so on. But then South Africans have realized that kind of in order to really understand what's going on, you need to, like almost none of that matters. And, and you need to kind of look through and particularly look at intra-party dynamics and, you know, kind of, and, and different factions within the party and within the government. You know, so South Africa, just for, for some context, so, so South Africa has done military exercises with the US and other Western partners, you know, I think with the, with the US last year. So it, it's not a situation, as I've seen in, in some American press, of like South Africa rejecting the United States in favor of China. At the same time, this is really bad timing. And the timing of it, one can see why particularly Russia would push for this timing, and one can 
don't see why they would leverage their BRICS, you know, kind of relationships in order to make these exercises happen at the at the, the one-year anniversary. Like, one can also see that South Africa is very much a junior partner in BRICS and that it has lesser leverage in order to, you know, in order to, to avoid this kind of thing. At the same time, I think there's this issues involved within the South African government. I think it, it's important, I think, to, to make a distinction between being pro-China or pro-Russia and being anti-Western. And I think both of those things are at play in different factions within the ANC. So I think there's certain people who want to, because of historical allegiances, because of BRICS connections, because, you know, simply because of of kind of fellow feeling, to have this this kind of gesture of solidarity with Russia or, you know, kind of gesture of cooperation with Russia and China. Then there's probably some other people also in the government that are also very obsessed with kind of NATO hegemony or Western hegemony and want to send a message to NATO. Both of those things can be at play at the same time. Plus, there could be a whole other bunch of factors at play, which you never get access to as a South African because the South African public is almost completely out of the loop in terms of like things that the government are planning. So, you know, so, so in that sense, you, you get this kind of like you know, the opposition parties, civil society, like screaming into the void about this. The government's official line being a very bland, like, we, you know, we, we support peacemaking, we support, you know, negotiation, get everyone around the table. And then at the same time, some kind of like factions driving the real car behind the scenes and no one knows who's really responsible. So all of those three things can be happening at the same time and they're all happening at the same time in South Africa. So, Avigwe, you have been following Russia in Africa for quite some time. Let's get your take on the exercises and what it says about the current state of Africa-Russia relations. So, from my perspective, South Africa is a very important country for Russia. I would, I would argue that it is actually one of the four countries you can call cornerstone to Russia's foreign policy, you know, vis-a-vis in Africa. The other has been in Egypt, uh, Algeria, and Morocco. These four countries are actually re- responsible for 70% of Russia's trade, right, with the continent. So you, you, could, you could say, even if you look at Russia's FDI into Africa, it represents 1% of total F- FDI into the continent. So Russia is supposed to not have the kind of influence it has on the continent because it, the economy doesn't check out. Even the investments and all of and, and all of other aspects, you could say maybe people to people flows. It it just doesn't explain the kind of influence Russia has on the continent. But to then explain it, or to then when you probe further, rather, what you find is Russia really has three vectors in its relationship with with the continent. So there's a geopolitical vector, there's an economic vector, and what you call call the political ideological vector. And South Africa happens to be one country where all of these three converge. In the sense that you have a country like South Africa who, you know, who is very much in the BRICS movement or the BRICS formation, which Russia sees or even the Chinese are trying to build up as an alternative in you know, a format to, you know, multilateralism. And at the same time, South Africa has a credit account surplus with Russia, you know, f- about $500 million exports to Russia. So the relationship with South Africa has both geopolitical, economic, and then the political ideological, which Kobos was just alluding to, if you, the current South Africa defense minister, Modise, actually trained in, in the Soviet Union. She was very much close to all of the political build-up that the Soviet Union was doing. So across the continents, looking at what Russia is doing in places like Mali, what is reportedly doing now in Burkina Faso, or trafficking in Burkina Faso, and uh, Central Africa Republic, it really is a, a country punching way above its weights and to a large extent, it's because of how it plays the politics in you know, the first game. And for South Africa, it has worked really well. This exercise is definitely one that you could criticize for wrong timing. The last one in 2019 was in November. So you could you could say why you're hosting it now in the context of the Ukraine war. And the South African government at least is saying that they have their sovereign rights to decide who their partners are. But you also have to recognize that foreign policy is not designed in a vacuum. There's a context and if you have the kind of weaknesses that South Africa has, you know, vis-a-vis energy and how Western countries play a very key role and the kind of situation it is right now, I think they should have thought this more carefully. Because if you, whether you're looking at the nuclear component of the energy cooperation with, with the U.S., there's a problem there, which we can talk, we'll talk about more in depth going forward. 
with JetP, just, just Energy Transition Partnership, you know, South Africa is still waiting on the eight, over 8 billion promised in COP26, I think. So there is a lot that it has to consider in its relationship with the West and be able to balance very well because solidarity it shouldn't attract national interest. And if it doesn't play that balancing game very well, I think it will be in a position where citizens might start asking very serious questions. Very quickly, Giro, just I want to get back to Cobus just because we're going to be losing Cobus for our discussion because he's got to run off to another engagement. You know, just to put some context on what Ovigwe was saying is that in terms of trade in 2021, which are the last figures that are available for Russia-Africa trade, Russia did $15.6 billion worth of trade with the continent. Compare that with the Chinese in 2022, who did $282 billion. And boy, there's no comparison whatsoever between those two. Kobus, very quickly, it's interesting that everybody this time around is talking about the Russians. Very few people are talking about the Chinese presence in these exercises. And at the same time, it's really stirred up an enormous amount of resentment in among civil society, opposition, and in publications like the Daily Maverick against the ANC and the government for going through with this. I mean, it's really a provocative issue in, in South Africa. Talk to us about those two issues, the Chinese and the civil society reaction, just very quickly before you have to go. Yes, absolutely. In in relation to the civil society, you know, angle of it, these really kind of fundamental philosophical cleavages in South African society. And one big one is a real kind of divergence of opinion about whether South Africa's democratic transition and the kind of compromises that were made during the 1990s in a moment of very strong US you know, kind of unipolar power, whether those compromises were warranted or not. So there's been, you know, for example, the Mandela era kind of commitment to kind of a, a liberal economy, strong institutions, and, and, a, and a very kind of like free market, you know, which was all all very popular kind of like talking points in, you know, in the, in the 90s and aligned South Africa very closely with US thinking, right? Kind of this protection of individual rights with a very free and open economy. That has become quite unpopular among among large parts of South, of South Africa life particularly obviously on the left and there's a strong kind of like way of like thinking on on the left wing of South Africa's politics that that South Africa was essentially so, that that real social justice was essentially sold out and the, you know and and that and the, those are like kind of ideas of for example you know socioeconomic rights and developmental rights that those were sold out to Western hegemony and so there's a kind of a counterweight you know kind of in leaning into China you know and leaning into Russia as, as these kind of like counter examples. And so that kind of cleavage runs right through the entire political establishment, runs right through civil society. And you would see frequently the people who are particularly kind of critical about these exercises tend to be on the kind of like liberal side, whereas people on the left of liberal side, you know, are relatively quiet. In relation to, to China, you know, kind of, I, I was also struck by the kind of low level of attention paid to, to the Chinese presence. I think, you know, kind of people like like Western commentators, I think at the moment, tend to assume that Russia and China are just almost the same thing, you know, kind of that they move together, which I think there's a lot of questions to raise there. I don't think the two are necessarily as close together as they seem. But from that kind of like like very kind of heightened Western perspective at the moment, they, they seem to be almost the same thing. What is interesting for me in relation to this is some of these exercises that they're planning include things like attack like aerial attacks on ships, right? Kind of which seems not very applicable to the Ukraine crisis and quite applicable to a possible future Taiwan crisis. You know, so so all of the, all of these issues are kind of sitting there hiding in plain sight, not really being discussed in terms of China's role in all of this and what China might be getting out of it. But I'm sure it's gonna gonna come up in a, in a year or two. Okay, so Kobus, we're going to release you now so you can go on to your next appointment. Thank you so much for joining us. Kobus will be back with us again next week for our China Global South podcast and then again for our China in Africa show. So let's move on now to get a perspective over in Mauritius from Giro. Let's get your take on the exercises before we move on to Tibet. 
Yes, I think Kobus and Ovigwe touch upon the issue I wanted to talk about because for me when Ovigwe was talking I was thinking more of like why South Africa would go its way to engage in this situation because South Africa when you look at the country it has enough leverage to just stay back and to say you know I'm not going to participate in it but we've been seeing lately they've been more active in taking position and even when you follow Naledi Pando when she went to Algeria a few weeks ago she was quite adamant in the position of South Africa uh, in a certain way lining up behind uh, Russia position or even la- Russian languages. So you see that there is that uh, that sense of uh, not wanting to stay behind, not wanting to stay side by, to clearly take position on different issues. We can argue that as Kobe said, ideological proximities and historical past, but in the same time you kind of wonder what do they gain into really pushing that agenda forward, really, really aligning themselves with Russia, with China on those issues. And that's for me, it's when it's it's one of the questions that we should ask ourselves. Ovigwe say that uh, ideology cannot uh, go over pragmatism in, in national interests, but somehow I do believe that there might be something behind that, but which just we're not seeing yet. But for me, it's still a question pending in my head on why South Africa is really pushing into that position. Okay, let's move on now to our next topic, which is the question of debt. All eyes right now are looking towards Bangalore, India, where The G20 finance ministers and central bank leaders are going to be gathering this weekend for what many people are calling a make-or-break moment in the global debt crisis, especially for countries in Africa, namely Ghana and Zambia, that are really at the knife's edge right now. The question right now is that there's a stalemate between China and the multilateral development banks. And China wants those multilateral development banks to also take what they call haircuts, which is losses on the debt. The multilateral development banks, and these are the Bretton Woods institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, these are those uh, Washington, D.C.-based institutions, they claim that because they offer low-interest loans at preferential rates, much lower in many cases than anybody else does, that they're taking their haircut on the front end and don't want to do it on the back end. We are at a standstill right now in terms of debt restructuring with Zambia, with Sri Lanka, and most other countries until an issue can be resolved. Going into these G20 talks, though, it is not looking optimistic at all right now. The U.S. and India both sending very pessimistic signals. Earlier this week, even the IMF was starting to leak out news to Bloomberg that said if they can't get a deal with the Chinese, in the case of Sri Lanka, they will go around the Chinese and just cut them out of the process. Again, that's not a very optimistic outlook on what's going to happen here. At the same time, let's bring it back to Africa. Uh, At the time we're recording this on Thursday, the show will come out on Friday. Ghanaian Finance Minister Ken Ofori Atta will be leading a delegation in Beijing on Friday where he's going to try and negotiate a debt restructuring deal with the Chinese. China accounts for $1.7 billion out of Ghana's $5.7 billion of external debt. Now, at the same time, this visit is happening in Beijing. Bear in mind, another milestone is occurring also on Friday in Ghana. They are going to miss a $40.6 million eurobond payment. This will officially put... Ghana in default. They've already said they're not going to service that debt. But, you know, it's one thing to say it, and it's another thing when the checks don't actually clear. And here we are. So they are the second country in Africa now in the post-pandemic era to do this. Zambia was the first. So, and then just one last point here before I'm going to turn it over to you, gentlemen, to get your takes on this. Chinese Finance Minister Liu Kun will be meeting with Sri Lankan President Ranil Wickremesinghe Singe later on Saturday, I think it is. And that's going to be uh, some discussions, again, that are going to be closely followed in Africa because everybody's looking at everybody else. What's the deal that's going to happen in Sri Lanka? Maybe the deal that people get in Zambia, maybe the deal that they get in Ethiopia and then also in Ghana. Again, everybody's looking. We're at a standstill right now. So all of that is going on right now. I know you've been covering this on Projet Afrique. Sheen, Giraud, tell us your thoughts on the standstill, the G20 and Ghana. Oh yeah, that's that's going to be a very interesting story to follow to what's going to happen because we're in a moment when uh, we are rethinking the Bretton Woods institutions. So far, for long term, we've been just take them for granted, the rules they've imposed, the way to address debt restructuring, all of that. For years, Africa has seen all that happening in a way that according to the rules, the rules cannot change. That's the rules. Somehow, we've never went to the place of asking ourselves, can those, can, can those rules be changed? Can we approach that debt restructuring in a 
different way. We've never done that. But now that China is coming to the fold, China is raising a question like, you know, we have to see how we can do things differently. We have to propose a new approach, a new way of dealing with the situation. But so far, China is still finding difficulties to convince other countries. And we've seen that how Indian media is already preparing the people's mind, you know, that China is a problem for, for Zambia, is a problem for Pakistan, is, a problem for, is also a problem for Sri Lanka. In that situation, when you go in the, ahead of the G20, you kind of have the feeling that we won't find anything new coming out of there. So the question will be, will China be able, if we remove China from the equation, what option Zambia, for instance, or Ghana, Zambia, who is really in a dire situation right now, what Zambia can do to move things forward? Because we remember last week, uh, when Zambia finance minister Situmbeko was asked about Chinese demand, the debate that spurred about what was Zambia position, it tells you how much Zambia on his side, although China is presenting Zambia, you know, that friend of, you know, all time in all situation, but somehow Zambia needs to find a solution way ahead. Now China seems to be willing and ready to fight to die on that hill of uh, of changing the rules, but will Zambia have the leverage and uh, the possibility to find the situation solved in the situation where the IMF, World Bank and you know, China don't find any agreement. That's the question that, from an African perspective, we should find a solution on that. Otherwise, it's just going to be, they're going to keep on bickering, bickering without us finding any solution. Just to give you a sense of the tone right now that's in Washington, the Washington Post newspaper ran an editorial today. And the last paragraph of this editorial, and let me read it for you just again, and I think this does represent what a lot of people think in D.C., Quote, China has been using developing nations as pawns in its bid for influence against the United States, a strategy that critics call debt trap diplomacy. There it is, Jiho. We got it in there. We're back again. And they go on to say, in claiming to aid the world's poor, China is exploiting them. But now the bill is coming due. And the question is, who is going to have to pay it? Ovigwe, your boss at Development Reimagined, our good friend, Hannah Ryder, she took a very different perspective, and she said today in The Diplomat, actually, that China's position is quite reasonable in many respects. And what we did in our newsletter today is we contrasted what Hannah was saying and what The Post was saying. Give us your take on this. Also, tell us a little bit about what Hannah is thinking and what you guys at Development Reimagined are thinking in terms of this standoff between China and the multilateral development banks. So with regards to Lenny, I think there is a clear recognition of from our analysis that it's a case of the MDBs passing the buck to point fingers at the Chinese and the Chinese pointing fingers at uh, the MDBs as they conduct the issue on that kind of basis. It is the countries that, that are debtors that, that, are, that are suffering. And that's for us, or at least from my perspective, is a consequence of this competition between the US and China and what that could mean on the ground for many countries. But Again, if you look at even within the continent, I think the, you would agree that the main issue is not really Chinese financing or MDB's financing. It's really the private sector, like the uh, debt servicing to euro bondholder. That is what is really gotten the dollar reserves or at least gotten many of these countries. In my own country, Nigeria, for instance, in 2020, 55% of debt service payment was to euro bonds, right? And that is the case for many countries. So. Even if as uh, we're going into G20 again, you know, South Africa and uh, many other countries are calling for the MDBs you know, to join the GSSI. And we know, of course, that the, uh, one third of the debts of the continent is owned by the, the MDBs, so it's very important. I still think the big question is how do we deal with a, a situation where there is nobody putting enough pressure on the private uh, sector uh, lenders because that is that they have the highest interest rate. So, uh, so something very interesting to also keep in mind here is the fact that the United States and the United Kingdom have done absolutely nothing right now because they have regulatory and legal jurisdiction over that those private creditors to give them some of that maneuverability to ease the debt burdens. Right now, the hedge funds and the bonds, the bondholders will say, we literally, it's against our fiduciary laws and guidelines to be able to provide debt relief because we would have to get a vote from every shareholder in order to do that. They can't do it. 
because these are huge funds. I mean, we're talking about BlackRock and JP Morgan and some of the biggest financial firms in the world. The one solution here is if the United States and if the United Kingdom could actually then loosen up the laws that give them the flexibility to do that. So they haven't done that. You know, I think we have to consider the option here, Giraud, that nothing happens this weekend. That and and at the end of the day, Zambia and Ghana are going to be left to dangle in the wind. People have been asking me all week and they're saying, well, something's got to happen because we can't just let these people suffer like this. And I keep reminding them that from the beginning of this process, for three years, we have not had a single debt restructuring. And Ovigwe talked about the DSSI, which is the Debt Service Suspension Initiative by the G20. If you look that up in the dictionary, it says joke. It's pathetic. There's nothing to it. Nobody's taken it seriously. And, and so anybody who, who talks about this as some kind of meaningful solution is just not serious. And the common framework that succeeded it has a total of four countries, four countries participating in it. This is not a serious thing. And the G20 has not prioritized it. And it's very, very likely that at, at, this, at this weekend's G20 summit, and many of you will be listening to the show after they've had this meeting in Bangalore, so the mystery will be solved. Totally possible that all of the big powers start fighting with each other over Ukraine, over you know all these other issues, U.S., China, and they do a lip service to debt as they've done in the past, and then they move on. Yeah. That's entirely a possibility there. But my question is, what the way forward now for a country like Zambia or Ghana? Ghana, who's sending the finance ministry tomorrow in, uh, in China to try to negotiate. What the way forward? No agreement with the, the rest of the Paris club countries. So what they do, what they approach? Because right now, people are going to listen to us from Lusaka or from Accra. They all this debate about the SSI, you know, G20, MDBs. For them, it's like, you know, those are high-level discussion. For us, like, what's the way forward from there? Let's say China doesn't find an agreement with them. What do we do now? How do we move forward from that? I don't know, Ovigui, if maybe you can help us to understand. What's the option on the table now for those countries? I think you have to look at both short-term and long-term. And I think let's start, let's start with the long-term ones because for Ghana, for instance, you know, Ghana has had... 17 IMF bailouts since 1966. There is no reason to believe that the three billion that the Ghanaians are going to get from the uh, from the, from the IMF, uh, I mean, soon is going to is going to solve the problem. So it's it's just kicking the count down the road. So yes, many people would say yes. Let let's get to a point where you could bail out Zambia. I bail, I bail out. If you bail them out today. It's probably going to be a cultural gaining next year, or it's, going, it's probably Zimbabwe, okay, not even Zimbabwe, but you know, do you know the other countries, or maybe Angola, the countries that, have, that really have certain uh, you know, uh, level with, with, their, with their credit. So, if we, even if, so whenever the debt issue is brought up and we have this conversation, is even if you solve the immediate, because we're always crisis oriented, what about the real long term you know, solution? I'm talking about you know, reforming the, the entire debt management system or the, or the structure, you know, things like, you know, debt sustainability, you know, uh, an analysis, we're talking about how you can even get countries to work more with African Development Bank to maybe reallocate their SDRs. There is so much that we can do at the structural level that is going to prevent this type of crisis from happening because the way I look at the debt issue is you are trying to treat cholera so you go out fighting cases as a breakout, right? But the water supply that is causing people to get cholera, you are not even addressing that at all. And the water supply in this case is the current structure of development finance. So you are get, you, you, we, are, we are basically getting back to this HIPC initiative and at that time and all those structural changes, or we are really talking on a larger scale change in terms of including the MDBs or the way also we are financing uh, the in develop, international development as a core. Because if we go on that road, that's basically what China is advocating now. It's like China is willing to open the debate and like, let's go and talk about those issues. But the West and the MDBs are not willing to talk about that. If you ask them, I'm sure they're going to talk to you about structural changes from developing countries that they have to change the way they govern their debt, they have to, to change the way they, they get debt and everything, but they will never talk about that. We have to see this problem as a whole and how to approach that. Exactly. And I think that is really at the core of it. See, if you look at the 
issue of development finance, you'll find that the thing isn't that one side is bad, but their theory of change or like the way they, the way they approach development finance is different. Like the West has its own approach, the Chinese have their own approach. And even for African countries, you'll find very so often countries are actually, they prefer one particular uh, lender depending on the context. So if, if you are in Nigeria, for instance, or any African country and your issue is really is about balancing budget. Usually the IMF that will do that, or sometimes if you get have good credit rating, then you, you are going to go to the private market. But when you look at infrastructure, for instance, yeah, the Chinese step up, right? So for countries, it's not an either or, well, at least, at least uh, well, well, they used to we step up. That, that, that. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> that, I mean, that argument. <laughs> I mean, we've seen the numbers of Igwe. The numbers are down to almost nothing now. But that is really the context of how we got to where we are today, right? So if we're going the last 20 years, let's use as, as context. And I've heard a lot of people in the development community talking about how they need to restructure the whole development finance ecosystem. And I, I just, I kind of laugh a little bit at that because getting Wall Street and the city in London to change will require the president, prime ministers, the parliament, and the Congress to use political credit to force them to change. And I just don't think that the politics in the US and UK are going to do that for Zambians and Nigerians. And they're going to do it for their own domestic reasons and domestic politics, but they would never do it to make the development finance system more equitable. Let's not forget that the financial services industry is one of the most powerful political lobbies in Europe and the United States. They're not going to change for moral reasons or it's the right thing to do or people are, are suffering. That's also one other thing to remember here, that Europe and the United States and the global north had no problem hoarding seven, eight, nine times the amount of vaccines when a lot of us living in the global south were staring into the abyss of wondering if this thing, COVID, was going to wipe us out. Yeah. And so let's not underestimate... <laughs> how I think people in Washington and New York and London are in Paris and, and are just going to say, we want our money back. And that's it. And that's the end of the story. And uh, it really reminds me when China came to the development finance game into Africa. It came in a moment where many African countries were searching for money. They were in crisis. They were just, many of them just passed the HIPC initiative from IMF and World Bank. When uh, Do me a favor. You've said HIPC twice now. Let's explain what that is. Highly indebted uh, country initiative. The initiative that was put in place. Uh, the highly indebted poor countries. Poor yes. countries, yes. The initiative that was put in place by the IMF and the World Bank to forgive give debt from developing countries, from, mostly from African countries. So when it happened, China came as a savior for many African countries. It was like, a mo I remember that moment, like it was in a moment when this, we signed those contracts in DRC that we're going to talk about later. But it was in that exact moment that many African countries saw this is the light. Now we are done from all those, you know, Western lenders and everything. We have, we are Ch we have China. And it's funny how 20 years down the line, you just realize that they did not learned the lesson from their own experience. They did not make the changes. They did not use the debt as it was supposed to be used in a way they don't find themselves in this position today. 20, 25 years later down the road, we are still where we are 25 years ago and we're still now having new discussion on the new framework, but with the same situation. And this is for me somehow it's really frustrating when I see how we are, how, how far we've gone. Nowhere. So earlier in the show, Ovigwe mentioned that U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was recently in Africa. Right now, Jill Biden is uh, Jill Biden is touring Namibia and Kenya. There's been a parade of American cabinet secretaries and ambassadors who are there. Jill Biden probably is not going to speak on these issues, but U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield has spoken on it, and Yellen herself, when they single out the Chinese in particular, for their role in the debt process. As Ovigwe pointed out, uh, the Chinese account for 12% of Africa's debt. Now, in some countries, it's particularly high, but when you look across the continent, that's actually a small number compared to the 35% of African debt that is owed to bondholders. Another very important column came out this week. We talked about the Washington Post. We talked about Hannah Ryder's column. Uh, this one came from 
Professor Deborah Braudigam at Johns Hopkins University, who is widely regarded as the most knowledgeable person on China-Africa debt and Africa's debt crisis writ large. And she wrote a column in Foreign Affairs, The Developing World's Coming Debt Crisis. And listen to this. And Ovigui, I'd like to get your take on this. Here's what she said. The United States weakens their hand every time it uses its bully pulpit to criticize China's actions as a creditor while remaining silent about private U.S.-based lenders and other governments friendly to the United States that have proven less amenable to helping poor countries seriously restructure their sovereign debts. And she uses Saudi Arabia as an example there. Coming from Deborah Braudigam in Washington, given her reputation, that is a damning critique of the United States. And I thought that was very interesting. Ovigwe, let's give you the last thought on this before we move on to the Congo. Exactly. For anyone who really understands the, Af- the African context, the issue really isn't that African countries shouldn't focus on getting credit or they should somehow just be content with the level of development. If you're, con- if you're not generating enough you know, uh, forex from trade and from your uh, export of goods or services or whatever, you have to find the money some way to make the necessary investment. Look, let's look at India, for instance. India has set aside $120 billion in its very recent budget for infrastructure alone. India has about 1.34 billion people. That is about the amount of people we have on the continent. We're slightly less on the continent of Africa. But African countries are spending nowhere near less, uh, nowhere near that, far, far less. And if you look at the AFDB body projection saying, there's actually around that amount of money by 100 billion to 110 is what Africa as a whole rather should be spending on a yearly basis. So if that Indian figure just shows you that the projection of what, how much Africa needs to close the infrastructure gap is actually valid because you have like, almost like for like size of population. So the question is Africa, or the question is not whether Africa needs more money to invest. The question is how can it get it cheaper and how can it get more development finance in it, uh, use that money in a very pragmatic way in a way to improve you know, economic productivity. So, yes, on one hand, the issues of economic efficiency, institutional, uh, institutional, you know, uh, upgrades that the IMF is pushing very, very important because these countries have to actually improve on, on domestic savings and, and, and all of that. Also, the Chinese argument of infrastructure-led development is also very valid as well because you can't just pump money into social programs and balancing budgets and not build infrastructure. That's how we got to this gaping hole in the, in the first place. So, Bratingham's critique... But, but sorry to interrupt you. You're stating that as if it's an absolute fact. But there are scholars like David Ndee in Kenya who say that infrastructure-led development is not the way to go. And they use Southeast Asia, where I am, in Vietnam as a good example, that this has not been infrastructure-led growth here in Vietnam and in Southeast Asia. It's been focused on human development, education, healthcare, uh, those kinds of things. And they're saying that it's been a mistake for African governments to go into so much debt building infrastructure rather than building human capacity and education and and all those other things. What's your take on that? Yeah, let me give you an example. In 2021, we got that report from Financial Times that it cost 4,000 US dollars to ship a 40-foot container from Shanghai to Lagos. And it cost exactly $4,000 to ship that container from the port in Lagos into Lagos mainland, which is 10 kilometers. You cannot tell me that such economic inefficiency does not have to be overcome with infrastructure. You, there's no amount of investment in health and education that is going to change that kind of inefficiency. You have to build roads. You have to build railway. You just have to build them sustainably. The fact that African countries have not been able to do it you know, in a very cost-effective manner does not undercut the theory that Infrastructure is very critical. Before countries will take off, they would inf- they will invest in infrastructure. There is no country that ca- that has done it without infrastructure. Maybe not they've done it smarter, but you always have to build infrastructure. And even in Vietnam, where you are, or any any of the countries taking off today, you could see that they're making so much investment in infrastructure. I just even mentioned India, you know, in the, in the last uh, comment. Okay. Wow. This is going to be one that we're going to follow up next week because we'll have some insights into what happens at the G20 
get-together in Bangalore. So uh, we're, we'll follow up with you, Ovigwe, to hear what you have to say on that. Let's wrap up our discussion talking about two big stories that happened in the DR Congo this week. Uh, the first story is that the Chinese sold nine CH-4 rainbow attack drones to the Congolese government. And this is very interesting because they're using those drones to basically try to make up for lost ground in the war against M23 rebels in the east. This is the latest presence of Chinese drones used in Africa. So we've got the Nigerians, Ethiopians, they've been spotted in Libya, and now in the DR Congo. The Nigerians have purchased, and Morocco as well, the Nigerians and the Moroccans have actually purchased the drones, whereas in Libya and in Ethiopia, and just to be sure, in Ethiopia they were photographed so it's not entirely sure what role they played in the Tigrayan War. But at the same time, a lot of people say that it leveled the playing field and brought the government back into control over Tigray was the use of Turkish and Chinese drones on loan from the UAE. They, they belong to the UAE. So let's get to the second story. And this is going to be the one that Giraud followed this week quite closely. It actually started, what, a week ago. So all of this happened in the course of six days with a weekend, so four business days, more or less. Keep that in mind. So the state auditor in Kinshasa wrote a damning report about the 2008 Sikomins mining deal. Now, the Sikomins is a joint venture between Chinese state-owned enterprises and Jekomins, which is the Congolese state-owned mining company. This was back then, if you recall, it was the deal of the century. It was, I think it started at 9 billion and then it got watered down to 8 billion and then it got watered down 6.2 billion. But anyway, the state auditor came out and said that Sikomins owes the Congolese government $17 billion dollars for new infrastructure based on all the profits that Sikomins has made from mining copper and cobalt over the years. Now, the Chinese came out swinging on this. I mean, they just, right away, the Chinese embassy and Sikomins on Twitter released statements. They basically said these guys, I mean, they, they were just you're apoplectic. And and it's funny, when you piss off the Chinese, they really abandon, <laughs> they move into North Korean broadcast mode very quickly. And it was like, these people are idiots and they're incompetent and they have, you know, it was just, just fiery language. Now, interesting, fast forward to earlier this week, Tuesday or Wednesday, and we get news. The central government in Kinshasa has negotiated a deal for $500 million with the China Railway Engineering Corporation, which is one of the partners in Sikomins. It was a $350 million addition to $150 million already committed, so up to $500 million this year for new infrastructure in 2023. So they went from $17 billion down to $500 million. And I wrote this week and I said, that's how the game in the Congo is played. Giro. This is your baby. You've been following this more than anybody else. Tell us what we need to know about this deal. Yeah, basically what we need to know about this deal is just like we've been saying since we started following this story two years ago when we said that this is a massive, it basically it's a massive, I would say massive shakedown with the way business has done in the RC. Who, who's shaking are, who down? Be clear here. Who's shaking who down? The Congolese government. The Congolese government are, in Kinshasa, right? Yeah, we are in 2023. It's election time in the RC. So you kind of have to put all of that in perspective to understand what's happening here. The state auditors came, I think you resume that his report, he came, he came with this damning report, you know, China, they did not build the infrastructure they were supposed to build. And um, almost 10 years after the agreement, nothing has been done. We just received $800 million instead of the $3 billion. We still need more. And the Chinese, they got more. So they have to add $17 billion on the basket of infrastructure so we can get to $20 billion in terms of uh, infrastructure. And um, it came to a moment where Chisekedi has been pushing hard since June 2021, entering 2022 and now 2023 has been pushing hard in terms of, you know, we want to see much more infrastructure because we are in election time. And the Min deal is the only China agreement deal which has this infrastructure component as, you know, obligation. So when you have Chinese infrastructure company starting to build, they, have, they start to build infrastructure, you know, you have some argument for your election purposes. So 
when you see how things were going on, it shows you that, you know, there was a lot of things happening on the ground because when you read the comment coming from the agency that is in charge of uh, negotiating Chinese contract, they say, no, this has come out of long month of discussion that we've been discussing with those Chinese companies to give us more money for the infrastructure. That's why you saw the harsh reaction coming from Chinese embassy and the Chinese company in the language of, uh, by even questioning the competency of uh, the state auditors by saying, we don't think that he's competent to come and do the job he's been doing by investigating what he was investigating in this report. So when they come up with the $500 million, the Chinese just find a way to manage to accommodate the regime in Kinshasa to give them what they wanted in this sensitive time of election in DRC. And at the end, it's just that feeling that, you know, we had a lot of noises, you know, some people, civil society, thought that that was the moment where we're going to see some changes. So a few days later, when they heard that, you know, there is $500 million coming out and the government says, okay, like, what's happened? What's happened to the 17 billions? So yeah, that shows you how Chinese are just, they've just learned how to maneuver the complexity of Congolese uh, political arena when it comes to do business in DRC. It's always funny because when you post the $17 billion story on Twitter, and these things now come out at a pretty regular cadence, every six, nine months, the Congolese government is making some demand on the mining companies. And so you, you post these stories on Twitter, and man, they take off like a rocket, you know, and you get this sense of like, see, finally, we're going to stick it to the Chinese. And then you post the follow-up story of the $500 million, okay? I have close to a million followers on LinkedIn. My story about the 17 billion got close to 50,000 views. My story on the 500 million part got next to nothing. And I don't think people like that narrative that like, at the end of the day, and this is what I said in my column, the Chinese have been there for 20 years and doing anything in the DRC for 20 years, especially mining, is really, really tough. And they know their way around. I mean, so does Glencore, by the way. I mean, these they're, they're not alone. This is The Chinese are by no means, they haven't cornered the market here. We need to remember here that Glencore is actually bigger than the Chinese are in the Congo. I think everybody focuses on the Chinese, but the Swiss are actually bigger players. I did a re, I did a, an interview with Swiss Radio this week, and uh, they were asking about this. And I, I had to remind them that, you know, it's your company, by the way, that is actually larger than the Chinese. They didn't know that. So they were kind of taken aback by it. But it, but again, it just speaks to the fact of this is what it takes to mine cobalt in the DRC in 2023. And I'm not convinced that the Europeans and the Americans have the stomach for it. I just, I just don't get, I mean, this, I don't think, this was solved in six days with a two-day weekend. <laughs> just tells you how much the arena is so complex and when people were asking me but what do you think about the china embassy communicators like when you read the language it's a sign of frustration it's like we cannot be discussing you know you know we cannot be discussing in secret and you come public you send me or your state audit officers to release this kind of statement and kind of blaming me and let's not forget that we have here state-owned companies the uh, chinese state-owned companies so that's why you see that kind of um, presence of the Chinese embassy to be on the forefront. The communique was saying we will not, uh, we won't be afraid to defend Chinese interests. It, it was like for them, it's something that's really important. That damning in terms of reputation, in terms of what they say about them, is like no, we 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 gonna go fight that war. So the question will be like, how far? That was the question that we had even year last year. How far the Congolese government is willing to go in that fight with the Chinese company? Do they have the stomach to do that? on the longer run? Do they have all the elements that to really bring into the light everything that's happening into the mining sector in DRC? This is where you see, this is when you understand that neither the Chinese or the Congolese government really have interest to go to the court of justice or to, to put their all their discussion out there. It's, it's just going to find a political resolution just like the one, just like the one we saw a few days ago. But but the, the mistake that a lot of people make when talking about the Congo, and you and I both agree on this, and we've talked about it at length, is the Congo is not a functioning country by most definitions. That Chesakadi, for the most part, is the mayor of Kinshasa. And when you look at the 
the history of the Congo, Otkutonga and Kaulezi and those areas in Lualaba province, those are in the, in the south part where the cobalt is. They've always had a separatist instinct. They've never felt at ease inside this massive country. And so the president may want to do something in Kinshasa for you know the Chinese in Kaulezi or in Lualaba province, but he doesn't have the power. He doesn't have the authority, and at the end of the day, there are very powerful people in those uh, in those regions that have very different interests than what Kinshasa is. So we oftentimes assign the Congo with the agency of being a functioning country with a central government that has the power and the authority to enact policies and governance. They don't. This is a broken country. I mean, by, by, and it's been a broken country for a very long time. So they can't enact any of these policies, even if they were to pass, because they don't have the reach to do it. Yeah, it comes with a lot of political negotiation. It comes with a lot of factors that you need to take into account to get things done, to get things moved forward. And it also has to take into account personal political agenda of the president himself and from diff- and different members of the government. And that tells you that it's that's your perception that the, that the outside has when it comes to the DRC, when they see all these noises of Chinese contract renegotiation, the hypes they get, the hopes they get, it's like you want to tell them don't you know don't get your hopes high too much because in the Congo things are not are they never the way they seems to be. Give it time, just give it few days and you're going to see it's going to be different. Ovigwe there's some similarities in many respects to what's happening in the Congo to what happens where you come from in Nigeria as well. This is a country that's not at ease with itself and its borders. It's, it's this awkward kind of combination of people, languages, cultures, and religions. Uh, let's get your final thoughts now on everything we've talked about today and what's happened in the Congo, debt, the Russians, and, and just give us a few reflections before we go. Yeah, I think we just have to, to start with, uh, with this issue of uh, natural resources. I don't know if you saw very recently that in, uh, in uh, Kaduna, uh, that in northern Nigeria, we there were of course hearing of Chinese investment now to go into li- to uh, lithium, uh, lithium, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And before that, uh, Tesla or Elon Musk did reach out to the Nigerian government, and what the Nigerian government essentially said was, "You can't just come take lithium; you have to put in some refining uh, process here." And of course, we didn't hear from or at least they haven't. We haven't heard any much from that. Part of the conversation, I think overall, the the kind of influence that, even though China does have a lot of uh, stake in the Congolese mining, you mentioned Glencore. Glencore has been there for way much longer than 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 even uh, even the Chinese. So. The, these type of a bit of correction. Glencore came a bit late. I mean, mid twenty. I mean, two thousand fourteen. It came a bit later, but it got one. It got the biggest, the the biggest uh, cobalt mine in the country. No, no, no. Mining in general. Ah, yes, Not mining in general. Yes, general. That's what I'm saying because it's the same. I mean, if you're going into, if you're looking at mining, the natural resource govern, uh, uh, resource management laws, and all of that. It's almost the same for all of the well, the metals and, and minerals. So whoever has the most experience knows how to navigate. But I think what the Chinese have been able to do very well, uh, and where they were able to sort of like outmaneuver the West or what is where Western companies is really for these strategic and, and critical uh, minerals. They tend to move fast, and the they try as much as possible to hold on to to whatever gains they've made. So even though, like in Nigerian context uh, that Eric just brought a- attention to, you could see, even though Tesla was was uh, was reached out to Nigeria if for for at least for some time before we heard of the Chinese the, the deal, I, I I can guarantee if you go research very close closely, and if I was in Nigeria now that made made some people to discuss this, you find out that there was a lot of background work going on. If with, between Nigeria and, and uh, the Chinese entities before that te- that Tesla deal came, and this is a kind of you know very tactical uh, attitude that they have, but with the competition for to, to secure supply chain really ramping up now, I think it's going to be very fierce. So countries will have to find a way to to really to really navigate, and the countries who have the best 
uh, in that are able to tie critical and strategic resources with their industrialization are more likely to win than those who are who do, uh, those who, uh, than those who might have good industrial policy but they don't have you know uh, territorial integrity. I mean, Zimbabwe, for instance, is able to move faster, you know, or trying to get up the value chain than than the, than the Congolese. They have done that with Chinese investment in steel, for instance. So, and we're seeing them burning lithium now. Maybe they, they could move in that direction. But what allows them to do that is the fact that in Zimbabwe, the Zimbabwean context is very different in terms of security than uh, in uh, Congo, than in, in Nigeria. So, that is the main thing. The, the state's capacity, or at least an, uh, that ability to project power and be able to be a, the main power broker across the length and breadth of the country, is what is missing from uh, Congo and what the government in Kinshasa you know, uh, is suffering. Then on debt, um, I'm, say, I'm, very, I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic with regards to uh, what's going to happen in India, but uh, just like you and Eric, I'm actually not very not, not, uh, optimistic at all. I'm trying to be, but I'm not, in the sense that the issues we're dealing with today, the, the pressure is not from... I don't think the Chinese feel pressure from, from African countries, nor the U.S. feel pressure from African countries. If the pressure is not from who is wearing the shoe, you are very, you're, 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 and you are very likely to 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 delay and to to delay tactics, and that's what these countries are going to do. Uh, the U.S. is not going to balk because China is putting pressure, or at least the MDBs won't balk. You know, the Chinese won't because the pressure is coming from uh, from the American, just because of the atti the attitude and the atmosphere or the political atmosphere between both countries. And that's why I'm very pessimistic. If this was exclusively maybe a U a U.S. Africa issue. Or exclusively a a, a China Africa issue, I think things might look better, but it's just not because if you say if you want to make it a China Africa issue, the Chinese will tell you, okay, yes, we can give you concessions, maybe, but what about the, what your, your your other debt, you know? And the, the same goes for you know if the issue was uh, between Africa and, and MDB. So that that is why I'm not. If both countries cannot recover, that both countries meaning our both partners as the. Uh, both sides rather, the Chinese side and the Western side then is going to be very difficult to get headway on on the debt issue. We're going to find out next week on that. I, I share your skepticism. I think all three of us are rather skeptical on all of this. So we'll be following this. And this is what we've been following closely every day in our newsletter, Ovigwe. You get our newsletter every day. Uh, it goes out to thousands of people in government, in diplomacy, in nonprofit, in academia. We would love for everybody else to sign up. You can try it out for free for 30 days. Go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. And we've got a special rate for students and faculty. Uh, Ovigwe, you know, again, we, we, we really thank you for being a loyal reader of ours and, and hope that you're finding it useful every day in your analysis of, uh, of what you're doing. Very, very useful. Oh, that's great. <laughs> we, so we uh, will, and again, we, we're covering these things every day as they're happening. So other publications, you'll see something on the, the $500 million Congo deal a week later, two weeks later. But literally, Giraud is right there on the story as soon as it breaks in French, following Congolese Twitter. And then we're getting that into our newsletter. And that's how folks are getting it. I, the best compliment that I got the other day is a, a government official. He said to me, he said, listen, you don't know how many times I've read your newsletter and then walked into a meeting and I'm smarter than the next guy in the meeting. And I said, that's exactly what we're doing. That's what we're doing it for. I mean, really, it's right there. And, and again, the kind of story like what we're doing in the Congo with Giraud is exactly why what this whole group of us doing in Africa, the Middle East, and here in Asia is so special is because Giraud is right there on Congolese Twitter, in Congolese publications, calling up folks in Kinshasa, asking them what's going on, and then we're putting that intelligence right into the newsletter so, and within 24 hours. So, so that's that's the you know our competitive advantage. We'd love for you guys to try it out, and and just also very grateful to everybody who's been supporting the independent journalism that we've been doing for all these years. And we're really grateful. So, Ovigwe, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing, and all the exciting things that you're doing around the world, where can they find you on Twitter? Yeah, you could uh, follow me on, on Twitter at Ovigwe Igwelu. 
also on LinkedIn as well. Okay. And Jero, Projet Afrique Chine, where can they find you online and your newsletter and Twitter? They can get our newsletter twice a week, every Tuesday and Friday. They just come to our website www.projetafriquechine.com and they just put the email on the top of the page and they're going to be receiving the newsletter twice a week. For Twitter, they can come and on Afrique Chine, it's Afrique with a K, Afrique Chine, and they're going to find us. If they want to follow my personal Twitter account, it's Christian Giraud on Twitter. There you're going to have find, you're going to find all my comments on Congolese politics and DRC and China and natural resources. So Giraud's newsletter is both free and in French. So again, this is something very, very interesting. And we will put links to Ovigwe and Giraud and also Cobus's uh, Twitter handles in the show notes. And for those of you who listen to the show online, I'm going to put a bunch of the articles that we referenced in today's show also there in the show notes as well. Ovigwe, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We're looking forward to having you back again. And Ovigwe, by the way, is going to start writing some columns for us in the newsletter very soon. So we're very excited about that. That's going to be fantastic. Again, you know, so excited to have your voice into the mix as well. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. So for Kobus van Staden, for Giro Nima, and also for Ovigwe Ego Ego, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at China GS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at projetafriquechine.com and Afriquechine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs>